Hi, I'm Sheldon Kennedy, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast, The Sheldon Kennedy Show. These episodes will feature honest and open conversations with notable guests who will share their stories, subject matter expertise, and insights on the many social issues we face today. This podcast is presented by Respect Group, founded in 2004. Respect Group empowers people to recognize and prevent bullying, abuse, harassment, and discrimination through interactive online education. And to date, over 1.8 million Canadians have been Respect certified in sport, schools, and the workplace. Now I'm delighted to introduce our next guest, Dr. Jennifer Williams, who's not just Dr. Jennifer Williams, she's a friend and she'd be called Jennifer Williams. (laughs) (laughs) So Jennifer is a compassionate and trauma-informed gastroenterologist and leader who is committed to creating healthy work environments which support individuals to thrive while improving the quality of healthcare, enhancing patient experience and outcomes and achieving system sustainability. Understanding and leveraging the interplay between leadership, psychosocial health and safety, and sense of belonging is a particular passion. Jennifer graduated from Memorial University Medical School and has been practicing gastroenterology for almost 15 years. She is Chief Wellness Officer, certified from Stanford Well, MD, and has been a leader in advocacy and building highly functioning teams. Director, Alberta Medical Association Board, where she was integral in the development of AMA Healthy Work Environments Framework, founding member of the AMA Specialty Care Alliance, Well Doc Alberta collaborator developing the link between leadership and wellness, Deputy Chair Clinical, Department of Medicine and Alberta Health Services co-chair, Psychological Safety Committee, and lead South Sector Provincial Medical Affairs Diversity, Wellness, and Leadership Development. Jennifer is passionate about system transformation through the lens of the experience of the workplace. Patients cannot be first in a system where the employees' physicians come last. She believes that creating healthcare teams characterized by safety, trust, connection, voice, empowerment, and compassion, that we can transform the system together. So with that, let's get started. Those were some pretty big words for an old hockey player, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) It's a no-sell. Some of those words where I was, uh, uh, the old brain was just a tick in there. I was like, okay, how do I pronounce this one? How are you? I'm good. How are you? It's good. nice to you, see you. You just made a big move in your life and your family's life. And how's that going? It's going really well. It's, yeah. um, I must say, I am grateful every day uh, that I wake up. Uh, I'm in a beautiful place in the world. I'm in Nanaimo. I'm right on the water. So I get to see water, bald eagles, sometimes orcas. I've joined a great group of people here. The workplace is fantastic. The people in it are fantastic. And uh, it's, it's a great place to be. Now, you graduated, weren't St. John's, Newfoundland, right? Is that yeah. Where you, isn't that, aren't you in, uh, from St. Your family's all from St. John's, Newfoundland? Yeah, so we're from St. John's, so coast to coast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the call of the water brought me back uh, to the ocean. It's nice to be in a, in a smaller place. I think there's more of a sense of community here, uh, which I, I think is, is really important. I think being near the water, I hadn't recognized how much I missed that and how important it was to me uh, until I came back. And um, my parents are out here visiting now. Uh, My brothers and and their families were just out here a little while ago. So we all had a a reunion because with COVID, we haven't been able to get together in the last two and a half years. And I think it was four years the last time all of us were together. So it's nice to get everyone together out here. Good. Now, Memorial, Memorial, that is the university on in St. John's, right? Yeah. 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 I spent a lot of time out on in St. John's and I just love that place. I love the people. We used to go and eat fish and chips. Yeah. At Green Sleeves. Do you ever remember a place called Green Sleeves? I worked at Green Sleeves. You worked at <laughs> what year did you work at Green Sleeves? Oh uh, gosh, when was that? It was sometime in university. So sometime between 95 and 99 somewhere in there so okay it's, you know, I just and- missed you then because we were there we played a little trivia for you yeah. we played when the St. John's Maple Leafs went there for the first time the AHL Toronto Maple Leafs farm team went to yep. St. John's we played in the old memorial 
arena downtown. Like I think it held maybe hold 2,500, 3,000 people. Anyway, it was game seven. I was with uh, the uh, Adirondack Red Wings, Detroit's farm team. So Mm -hmm. we played game seven in St. John's, Newfoundland. And I remember they announced there was two tickets left for the, for the game. And uh, I don't know how they had two tickets, but there was like 2,500 people lined up. And in that game, people were sitting. There was old wood rafters across yep. the across the ice. People were sitting on those rafters uh, watching the game. Anyway, a little bit of history about St. John's. But we got fogged in and we got snowed in in St. John's um, for uh, two days. Yeah. So our plane couldn't get out. So we we spent a lot of time at Greensleeve. So it's probably good you were not working there, Jen Williams. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's another little bit of trivia about green sleeves in Newfoundland. So the owner of green sleeves is actually my dad's cousin. So it's such a small world in Newfoundland. I mean, it's a small world in general. Uh, you know, people say six degrees of separation, but in Newfoundland, it's about two degrees. Uh, so every everybody knows each other. And, yeah, well, we uh, are going like, to listen on Friday evening. We're going to listen to another friend of mine from Newfoundland, Sean McCann from the Great Big Sea. Ah, yes. He's playing here at the King 80, and Sean, obviously, I'm not sure if you know his story, but he has, uh, I mean, the band is no longer together, but he is out on his own, and he does a lot of singing. He's disclosed about his addiction, but also his his abuse that he suffered and the mental health that, that he struggles with. So he uh, puts on an awesome show around, you know, for, for many organizations trying to raise money and, yeah. and stuff. So I'm looking forward to seeing him. And well, Jen, I mean... You know, I wanted to have you on as a guest just because your knowledge and, and the purpose of our podcast is and, and why we wanted to try to bring on, you know, experts in this space to really teach and help, you know, all of those. I mean, that that will listen to this, but in particular, you know, really the clients and, and the partners and the friends of Respect Group that we've been working with over the many, many years to to just help them and be a value add to to their work and continually make them better. So why don't you give us a little bit of history? Um, you know, just give us a little bit of history, how you got into medicine and and uh, why you wanted to get into medicine to start with. And, and then, you know, as you went through your career, maybe how you got into all of the work that you're doing. I mean, you know, around diversity, wellness, leadership, like what made you want to get into that? And was there a shift in your, at some point in your career that said, geez, you know, this other piece has got to be just as critical as the gastroenterology. And was it a eye opener when you decided I'm going to be a doctor to, geez, I'm a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Not that yeah. I mean that, but some days it's like that because my my partner is works with Jen. So and she's Jen too. So that's why I kind of know a little bit. That's how Jen and I met. Yeah. And your Jen has been so supportive and so understanding and really so compassionate. And I think we've traveled a lot of these parts of this journey together. And I think you and Jen and the support I've received from you and just helping me take a step back and see things uh, from a different angle or, you know, a higher place was, was really helpful for me to kind of put the pieces together and see what was actually happening. So, yeah, I mean, I grew, I grew up in Newfoundland. Uh, I'm from there originally. Um, my dad um, is trained as a family physician and worked in the cottage hospital system in Newfoundland. Um, And then when I was quite young, we moved into St. John's and he took on various administrative and leadership roles within medicine and always continued to do locums in clinical medicine as well. And I remember in grade four, we had to do a, you know, school project of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And so I took it very seriously. (laughs) Nice little perfectionistic. Not not (laughs) usually. I thought, okay, I had it narrowed down to, I think it was a nurse, an astronaut or a doctor. And so I interviewed my mom, who was a nurse, I interviewed my dad, who was a doctor, and decided at that point, I wanted to be a physician. And, you know, that continued on. Initially, I wanted to be a uh, rural family physician um, and, and live in, in rural Newfoundland. And then that changed over time. I uh, came out to Calgary to do um, internal medicine residency and then GI fellowship and then stayed. I got a job and I was working as a general internist and as a gastroenterologist. 
And, you know, I must say, like, growing up in Newfoundland was such a positive experience. There was such an incredible sense of belonging. And even to this day, when I meet other Newfoundlanders, it's an instant sense of connection and the sense of belonging. Um, I played a lot of sports. That was certainly important as well. And, you know, when I went into medicine, I was confident, self-assured, compassionate, uh, wanted to make a difference and and wanted to go into medicine to to look after people and really provide health care rather than disease management. What year did you get to Calgary then, Jen? 2003. 2003, okay. So yeah, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And you know, I remember being confident, self-assured, living a great life. Uh, You know, medicine was not easy. There were long hours. And at some point that changed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I use that as a learning opportunity to try and help me sort out what was happening and what was going on. And that took me to to do the chief wellness officer training in, in Stanford uh, to understand physician wellness and burnout. Um, it took me to various uh, leadership courses and training. And it took me to the AMA as well, to the Alberta Medical Association. And the AMA is really where physicians can have a voice and can have some influence. And it's a very positive working environment. And through the AMA, we were able to, I was able to share my experience and then have others share their experience, work with internal, you know, members of the AMA and external um, stakeholder groups to, you know, after sharing my experience to come up with a healthy work environments framework. And that's really looking at the work environment as being integral to individual excellence and thriving physicians. And as a result, better outcomes for patient, improve patient satisfaction and system sustainability. And so really through those internal summits and external stakeholders meetings, we were able to develop the healthy work environments framework looking at the interconnections between EDI, so equity, diversity, inclusion, psychosocial health and safety, so psychological safety, and then the other 14 uh, psychosocial health and safety factors, and leadership, and how they all intermix and are intertwined to create the work environments in which we work, where we're either thriving or just surviving. And so, you know, again, things started to change. And at one point, I remember myself with a physician and family support uh, program psychologist, and I had my second child at that point, and I was burnt out. And, you know, by all definitions of, of how we refer to burnout, I look at that differently now. And, you know, she looked at me and she said, I see a shell of a person. I see glimpses of this wonderful, confident, thriving person coming through but that's not who's here sitting in front of me. And so I think it was at that point where I really kind of put things into high gear to sort of use this as a learning experience. And then a couple of years after that, I was in a situation where I had an option to stand up and speak out or take a hand slap. And I chose to stand up and speak out and be a truth teller. And that has not been (laughs) a positive journey. I've learned a ton from it. And I've really been able to uh, study and understand the trauma literature in more detail and combine that with the physician wellness, burnout environment literature. And myself and a colleague have recently uh, created, developed, and and just co-facilitated our first session with the Canadian Medical Association Jewel Physician Learning Institute on creating healthy work culture through trauma-informed leadership. Before we get there, and I definitely want to get there, I want to come back to just, I want to kind of take the timeline. So you got to Calgary, you started doing your internship in 2003. When did you get uh, with the AMA, I believe it was, to start creating the ED, when did you start doing the EDI work? And when, when did that become important in your career? Like when did you, and then when, and like how long did it take you to have you know, the excitement of being a young doctor into just being a shell of yourself. Just give me a little bit of history of that, if you don't mind. So we know timelines. Yeah. So yeah, so I moved out to Calgary in 2003, started residency. And then I think it was probably in about 2006, 2007, I started to notice really it was impacts of trauma. 
And I, and I hadn't recognized that until recently in terms of exactly what it was, right? I was calling it burnout. I thought maybe it was something I was doing, working too hard, not setting good enough boundaries, which is, is part of it. But, you know, at least 80% of the factors that lead to, to burnout are at the system level. So it was probably about, yeah, 2007 in, into uh, my GI fellowship. And then it was 2014. So actually late 2011, 2012, when I was pregnant with my first son, I was with a PFSP physician or sorry, psychologist, you know, looking at what my values were, contemplating leaving medicine, uh, which is often a sign of, of burnout or trauma. And then in 2014 was when I found myself with uh, a second psychologist at that point. And then I started working with the AMA in 2015 okay. as the uh, section representative for gastroenterology. So having an opportunity to have a voice and choice and some influence mm-hmm. and to represent and advocate for other physicians was such a positive move. And then in 2017, um, was elected to the board of directors at the AMA, as well as was able to work with a group to bring together a group of specialists to form the Specialty Care Alliance, which was, again, advocacy and bringing voice, choice, and influence to a group of physicians into the healthcare system. Um, and then that's really when we started to work on, you know, the EDI, the leadership, the psychological safety work. So, so 2017. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, you, you were early, early in the game. You would have been, um, that would have been uh, fairly early in the whole, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's the buzzword in in all workplaces as it should be uh, now, but I mean, back then it it probably wasn't as popular as it is today, or I guess uh, acknowledged as such an important area to work in. But talk to me a little bit about uh, trauma. When you say what you know today is trauma. Now, was that vicarious trauma from the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis with seeing clients and, you know, um, and that difficult work as being a physician? Or is that is that trauma that comes from uh, just an unhealthy workplace, which, uh, or both? Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. And then talk a little bit about, I'd like to hear about, you said, uh, about lessons, the lessons you learned when you decided to speak up and and you know raise your voice but it didn't go very well what lessons did you did you learn in that um i'm just trying to you know really connect those dots and then i want to look and and start moving towards tools that maybe we can uh that that you can recommend or that you've seen work or we can have that conversation yeah so just back to something you talked about you know early in the edi standpoint of things so i remember in 2018 i was called into a meeting basically to prove that gender inequity existed in a unit um and i think back to that now (laughs) and it was it was so early in the journey of things that we we had to prove it existed like somehow we were doing something bad for even bringing it up, right? Whereas yeah. now if someone called me into a meeting to prove that gender inequity exists in, <laughs> in medicine or the workplace, I mean, it, it would almost be laughable, right? So yeah. we have come quite a ways in the last four to five years. To get back to your trauma question, you know, I think I look at trauma from a psychological or emotional standpoint. So it's a psychological or emotional wound, which is visible, which uh-huh. impacts performance and well-being. And so think about that in healthcare. Um, If we're traumatized in our workplace, it impacts our performance and well-being. And what does that do, not just to us, but the patients we're looking after, the system, the teams, right? So I think, you know, when I think about sources of trauma, we all have different sources of trauma. And some of that may come from childhood. Some of it may come from outside of work. I think for me, the sources of trauma were workplace trauma. And so some of that uh, we can't escape by the fact that, you know, I am a physician. I I will be around death and dying. I will be around um, difficult encounters, will be around medical complaints and and medical error, right? We're we're human. So there will be medical errors. I think COVID has really unmasked what was already there before. We're now finally starting to refer to our workforce as traumatized. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, other sources of trauma that we experience, moral distress and injury. Now, some of that could be through COVID, not being able to provide the care or resources that we want. But for some people, they experience moral distress and moral injury every single day because they can't bring their full selves to work or 
can't speak up if there's not a safe environment to speak. So then you're in a situation where you're constantly thinking, can I speak? Is it safe to? I know this is dangerous. I don't agree with it. But, but you can't. So every day there's that cognitive dissonance where you have to bring yourself to work and can't really follow your your values. So is that because of the fear of the system? Is that the hierarchical system of healthcare, or what? What what is that fear of speaking out like? I, I think it's not a culture of of rewarded vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you look at you know what psychological safety is. It's an environment of rewarded vulnerability to be included, to learn, to say you don't know, to contribute and to challenge. And we've all seen, and many of us have experienced, what happens to truth tellers. You know, truth tellers might be known as whistleblowers. They're prior to standing up and speaking out, they're often some of the most respected, ethical, uh, valuable workers. And Oftentimes, when truth tellers speak up or go to someone who's supposed to be in a position of support and leadership, and they're either invalidated, dismissed, ridiculed, not heard, or there's active retaliation or reprisals or no action, that really sets up betrayal trauma. Mm -hmm. And the betrayal trauma is often more harmful and hurtful than the initial trauma itself. So the other traumas we may experience in the workplace are microaggressions, tokenism, or other forms of oppression, or basically taking responsibility but not having any influence, bullying, abuse, harassment, discrimination, and racism. All of these things are common in all workplaces, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just medicine. So we see it in business, we see it in sport. I think it's really pervasive. And so one of the first things we as humans do when we experience trauma is to look for social reciprocity. So to look for connection, so look for someone that's going to hear us to feel that we're understood and really valued for bringing that information forward. If the first person we reach out to in in a position of, of trust or support doesn't give us that understanding, the support, the validation that sets up betrayal trauma. And when it's done on an institutional basis, it's called institutional betrayal. And that can happen by not having reporting systems, by having reporting systems that don't work, by, um, you know, potentially forcing people to do overtime without being recognized for that. And then the reprisals that can come as a result of that can be further damaging and can really set up a downward spiral for employees. Yeah. We talk about this, and I know it's been a word that... You know, if, if you're running an organization, they don't like to hear, but I think I think it's it's the only word that fits and it's systemic. Yeah. When we look at what you're talking about is yes, there's individuals behaving a certain way. I get that. But I, I truly believe in some of the work that I've looked at and tried to learn about is the system. The system doesn't set anybody up for success. And it creates those certain groups to get into positions of leadership that know one way because they've never been taught another way. And that's basically, forget about it, and it'll go away or dismiss any complaint or shun the shun the squeaky wheel. Right. And I think like, you know, that's a major cultural shift, like maybe talk a little bit about your you know, not maybe not even just your personal experience, Jen, but just like, what is the culture like in medicine? Like I see it from an outsider because I, my partner is in medicine, but you know, I I think there's a perception that the medical world is, you know, is, is because their medicine, they know this stuff all too well. And I think that that's uh, not true. Um, I think that there's a lot of work to be done in the hierarchical uh, structure in medicine. And, and I'd love to hear your your just voice on that and, and things that you're learning about. And what what kind of things are you are you looking to change and or that what's happening within the medical world across our country and around the world to to address these issues, this cultural kind of shift, if you may? Yeah. So I think, you know, the system is perfectly designed for the outcomes you have. 
And that's true in medicine. It's true everywhere else, right? So if you want different outcomes, you need to change the system. And particularly medicine, we know that at least 80% of the things that lead to what we're calling burnout, what I would label complex trauma, are at that system level. And so I think if you want different outcomes, you want a thriving, healthy workforce, which will equate to better patient experience, better patient outcomes, and system sustainability, so cost savings, you need to change the system. And I think that starts with leadership. And I think, you know, when I say leadership, I'm not talking about formal leadership. I mean, in part, I am. But it's the leadership we all have within us to live our best lives and to, you know, tap into that discomfort, right? So I think what happens when truth tellers (laughs) stand up and speak out or when someone brings a different view to the table that's outside of groupthink, the human reaction is, is to feel discomfort, right? And so I think it's on me as a leader, as a human being to, to tap into that discomfort and understand where that's coming from rather than transfer it onto someone else as what's wrong with them. So to understand that discomfort, that that discomfort could be a diverse view, opinion, background, perspective. It could be something which is challenging my values, or it could be the truth, Mm -hmm. which is uncomfortable. And so I think tapping into that, listening, listening to understand, And then really shifting the mindset from a more directive form of leadership. So, you know, power over doing two to one, which is more relational. Uh, Instead of what's wrong with you, what happened to you? Why am I seeing these behaviors? Getting to a place of curiosity where we can actually listen to each other. And I think when we can listen to each other, that's when we start to, you know, bring ideas together and innovate and be creative um, and really feel that sense of support. There seems to be, like, it seems to be a fear of change. And given given what we know today, I mean, to me, I mean, what I see and what I understand is that, you know, a lot of places, maybe not all medical, I guess, institutions, if that's what you want to call it. But I mean, I, I think the ones that I understand and know, they seem to be a few years behind other organizations in, in this shift and really embracing what we know is as uh, uh, healthy workplaces, and and why why do you think it's why do you think there's a fear for shift and change in the medical structure? Do you think it's you know the fear of losing power or control or or is it just is it help me out with that one? Yeah, I think a lot of the human behaviors we're seeing are just that they're human behaviors. Yeah. <laughs> I think you know we are there's always going to be some resistance to change, right? So Mm -hmm. when you're talking about culture shift, there's some stress, anxiety, so pushing the culture forward, right? So what's the burning platform? So, you know, the the Me Too movement was a big one to shift culture. There's always that learning anxiety pushing it back. So I think people in general are resistant to change. People don't want to feel that discomfort, right? And with any change, particularly with culture change, it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to hurt, right? In order to get to compassion, which is action, you have to get to empathy first. And empathy means putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And so, you know, one of the the leaders in in, um, physician wellness once said, you got to feel bad to feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to get to that place of empathy and understanding, which will be uncomfortable to then be able to take action. And so I think a lot of courage comes with that, right? So, you know, courage to stand up and speak out sometimes, but also the courage to sit down and listen and to um, feel that discomfort and do something with it. You know, the other thing I learned a lot about was was power. So power and privilege. Um, And so sort of an eye-opening moment for me was learning about the four types of power, right? So there's uh, power of knowledge and expertise, the power of connections, so who you know, the relationships you have with people, the power of reputation, and then there's formal positional power. And the large majority of healthcare systems in Canada anyways are hierarchical. And so in any true hierarchy, those first three forms of power, so knowledge, expertise, connections, and reputation, are seen as a threat to positional or formal power. 
And so the human response is to discredit, to attack connections or reputation uh, so they can protect that formal power. So a lot of it does have to do with power and that that's human nature. There's also something called the Semmelweis reflex, which is named after uh, an obstetrician um, in, he was Hungarian, but I think he was working in Italy. And, you know, it's basically the natural human response to resist or oppress new ideas (laughs) or knowledge doesn't matter how much evidence or research backs it up, but it's something new. So it's challenging the status quo, it's challenging current norms. And so the human reaction naturally is to resist that. So he actually found that washing hands after working on cadavers, so in the anatomy lab, reduced the risk of postpartum sepsis in, in women that had just delivered babies just by washing their hands. And so he had all sorts of research to prove this. And he was so passionate about it. So he said, we all need to wash our hands he went around telling his colleagues he had data to show that the death rate in in women dropped significantly and they didn't believe him didn't renew his position so he was jobless he tried harder to to prove that this was something everyone should be doing and then they basically admitted him to um a mental asylum at that time he was beaten and died of sepsis which was the very illness he was studying Um, And so they labeled him as, um, you know, having a mental health issue at that point. And he was, you know, the first person that discovered the link between hand washing and uh, sepsis in in postpartum women. And so it is a natural human response. So we have to resist that semi reflex is what I'm saying. So tap into our own discomfort and resist that. Yeah. Now, there's lots of good stuff going on, too. And I know you're you're. you're a big part of that, Jen. And I'd love for you to talk to me about, you know, what do you see needs to happen, but also like, what are some of the good things that are going on and what have you learned? And, you know, because I think we need to, you know, we needed to hear where you're coming from, but we also need to know where are we going? And I think we need to, we need to be in that, where are we going? How do we make a change? How do we be better every day? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Jen. Yeah. So I think you're right. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. I think when we look back to, you know, even 2018, when I was pulled into that meeting to prove that gender inequity existed, you know, I think the conversations have changed. And I think we're much farther along than we ever have been before. So I think that's good. I think there are certainly environments that have achieved a healthy work environment and highly functioning teams. And I think that's really the key, right? It's it's highly functioning teams because we work in teams in medicine. And so how do we show that we care about each other every day? And how do we prevent harming every day? So I think just being intentional about those things Mm -hmm. is helpful. I think, you know, setting boundaries is helpful from a, from an individual standpoint and trying to, you know, live your best self. So self-care, so sleep, exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, breathing, all those things are helpful, you know, to recover from trauma. I think the other thing that's important is, is connection, right? So reaching out to someone that, you know, a psychologist, a counselor, a social worker that has experience in trauma specifically is helpful. Reaching out to colleagues who will understand your experience and can provide support for your experience is helpful. And I think the big thing is we need to look at this from a system standpoint, Mm -hmm. right? So we need to prevent the primary and secondary traumas from happening in the first place. So the primary traumas that we're exposed to in the culture, and then the secondary trauma from the betrayal trauma. And Mm -hmm. so I think number one is an awareness, right? That this is happening. So improve the education around that work to create trauma-informed leadership. So to create safety, awareness, fostering voice and choice and influence, empowering people, being curious, so shifting from that judgment to curiosity mindset, and then really trying to rebuild or restore those relationships. And I really think at the basis of all of that is is respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny eh, how, you know, I think that that word respect, I mean, you know, it basically, you know, it all falls under there. I mean, if we can respect one another for who they are as individuals and be compassionate, you know, it, it really covers a lot. Yeah. Uh, if we can really 
hone in on understanding what uh, what respect is. And now talk a little bit about Jen. Talk a little bit about you were you were just at a the first national conference. Was it a conference mm-hmm. that uh, around uh, trauma, institutional trauma? Talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about how you got there, what it was about, the purpose of it, and uh, you know what what your goals are coming out of that. Yeah. So my colleague and I, Jody Ploquan, we created, developed, and just co-facilitated our first session. Um, so um, it's entitled Creating Healthy Work Culture Through Trauma-Informed Leadership in Healthcare. And it's not just applicable in healthcare. I think it's really applicable and can be transferable to any workplace. Mm-hmm. And so really what we do is we bring together the trauma literature and the workplace wellness and burnout literature into one place and reframe burnout in terms of complex trauma. And from there, we look at ways that we might be able to prevent or reduce harm from the primary workplace traumas that we experience and try and prevent that betrayal trauma on an ongoing basis. And really that's through developing trauma-informed leaders. And so if you think about, well, what is trauma-informed leadership? It's really bringing together an awareness of trauma and how that might show up together with compassionate leadership. So basically, how do I show I care and how do I prevent harm? You know, we've talked a lot about burnout. You've talked a lot. I, I, I've experienced burnout myself. So I'm sitting here thinking when I know what Jen's talking about when she talks about burnout, I get it. I've experienced it. It's real and it really impacts every individual that that uh, is impacted by it. But can you give me give me a little bit of what your definition of burnout really is like how does it impact somebody so that they actually know if they're even because I mean for me I didn't even realize why I felt the way I felt I mean I had to go and do some research on it to realize that you know what the reality is is you know I've had the foot on the floor for a long time right like the gas pedal has been welded to the floor mat and when I took that gas pedal off it really hit me about you know I'm not doing well and uh you know, and basically it was burnout, burnout and vicarious trauma, all that stuff. And I really, you know, I know we talk about it and we need to label it, but at the end of the day, it's about learning and practicing self-care, like you talked about, like, but just give me a little bit of what you, what your perception of burnout, what you see it as, and maybe some, you know, what we're talking about, because I, we've talked a lot about it today. Yeah. I think just the other thing too is, you know, you talked about self-care. It it is it is so important. I think self-care is important at any stage. If you've experienced institutional betrayal or interpersonal betrayal and what you're experiencing is complex trauma as a result of that, you need other things, right? Mm-hmm. There needs to be other supports for that and we need to try and get to the underlying sources of that complex trauma and to reverse the impact of betrayal trauma and prevent it from ongoing. But mm-hmm. I think when we talk about burnout, I mean, it's now a DSM definition. What's um, a DSM? So, it, so it's the Diagnostic Statistics Manual in, in Psychiatry. So it's oh, actually yeah, recognized those, yeah. as a disorder. <laughs> so it's basically an occupational hazard resulting from exposure to unresolved job stress, which results in emotional exhaustion mm-hmm. and physical exhaustion often cynicism and depersonalization and a reduced feeling of personal accomplishment and professional accomplishment. When you look at burnout, you know, the six big sources of burnout are really at the system level. So unsustainable workload, uh, perceived lack of, of control, insufficient rewards for efforts, a lack of a supportive community, a lack of fairness, and mismatched values and skills, okay? So we know that burnout has personal consequences and then professional or system consequences. So personally, you might be exhausted. You might have substance abuse as a coping mechanism, uh, increased risk of anxiety, depression, increased risk of um, relationship issues, uh, and increased risk of suicide. On the professional or system standpoint, it's associated with increased staff turnover. So you might leave your job, poor morale, increased medical errors and patient complaints, and increased cost to the system. So that's from the burnout literature. Okay. So if you then overlap that with 
uh, what we know from the impacts of oppression, marginalization, bullying, abuse, harassment, discrimination, betrayal, trauma, they look very similar. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, complex trauma, repeated ongoing interpersonal trauma, so often from, you know, bullying, abuse, harassment, discrimination, or being cancelled, right? So being dismissed, excluded, not recognized for contributions as well, results in altered attention. So you might have a, you know, constant brain fog, cognitive exhaustion, in addition to emotional exhaustion, altered ability to control your emotions. So how might that show up in the workplace? Mm-hmm. Uh, relationship or connection challenges. And then strong negative beliefs about yourself, about the world or about the future. So really feeling shame, blame, uh, more than guilt and you know, lacking hope. So really taking away a sense of safety, a sense of trust, a sense of connection and a sense of voice and choice. So really being disempowered. Mm-hmm. And We know the impacts of trauma are associated with many of the things that I just talked about with burnout. And so I think if we overlap those two, I think it's been sitting there the whole time. I think what we've labeled burnout is actually impacts of chronic, complex, traumatic stress in our workplace. And so I think step number one is acknowledging that so then we can understand what is driving this and then we can try and mitigate the impacts of of the trauma and reduce that betrayal trauma well that makes a lot of sense i mean you know i know at our work at the child obviously center just bringing these systems together and teaching them actually how to work together Mm -hmm. i mean you know we had way less burnout i mean i think the average stay for an investigator was three years and we were now going on seven years uh, for length of stay in child abuse investigation it wasn't so much the investigation of hearing traumatic stories and events and which is you know that vicarious trauma side Mm -hmm. It, it was it was about trying to create a a system that taking away all those stressors because what were they worried about they were spending the majority of their time t- trying to connect with another system, say police to social work or police to healthcare, to discuss a case. Meanwhile, the cases that they had on their plate that were always there in the back of their mind were, were taking months and years yeah. to complete, whereas now they were able to get that done in a day. So the actual vicarious trauma piece of the interview wasn't as impactful when you could eliminate that other piece of that betrayal or that systemic trauma that went around it. I, I mean, yeah. if that's what I was hearing you say that, you know, makes a ton of sense. And I think it all comes back to, you know, what kind of structure can we put in place and then get everybody on board to practice it? Because there's not going to be one specific piece or yeah. thing that is going to change this. I think it's got to be a continued, it's got to be embedded in everything that we're going to do this can't it's not going to be a program it's not going to be a policy it's not good it's got to be embedded so until there's the belief and acknowledgement that this is this work and this understanding all the edi work the trauma work the respect work all of that work is critical to the success of the entity that you work in the corporation the the medical world the sport organization you name it I don't think we're going to get the change that we're going to look for. And what I'm finding is that the organizations that are having success, that are building it part of their, you know, their their values-based pillars, I think are are leading the way. And that's those are the organizations that I think are, what I see anyway are seem to be getting more positive results than those that are still trying to box check it and, you know, do the work off the side of their desk instead of put it right in their top three values of, you know, of the success of their company. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's so important, right? This really is, I think if you look at trauma-informed leadership to create trauma-informed organizations and workplaces, it really is a way of communicating with and seeing people um, where you're providing compassion, avoiding harm, and resisting that re-traumatization, that betrayal trauma. And so it comes in every interaction, in every team, Mm -hmm. uh, and then in every review of policy, procedure, protocol, it really needs to be embedded in there as part of your leadership training. And then, you know, in, in healthcare, I think 
and in, in every organization, we need to look at, you know, who's, who's looking after the people yeah. doing the work, right? Like who's, who's looking after the athletes, who's yeah. looking after the healthcare workers and the physicians. And currently that is not structured in. So the system is perfectly designed for the outcomes we have to protect the organization or the reputation of the organization. And therefore, if truth tellers come up with truths that are uncomfortable, the natural response is to silence it into compliance. And so we're championing exactly what the system is set up to champion, Mm -hmm. not change, not challenging that status quo. And so how do we ensure, you know, that we are looking after the people providing the service? And I think in healthcare, we do have some experience with trauma-informed care, right? So trauma-informed care with, with patients. And we know that organizations that action trauma-informed care, it's associated with improved staff morale, improved productivity, better patient satisfaction, better outcomes. We also know that compassionate organizations that practice compassionate healthcare to patients are also associated with improved patient outcomes, improved patient satisfaction, and decreased unnecessary utilization of healthcare as well. And so really it's extending trauma-informed care to trauma-informed leadership. So our people are experiencing that as well. And we're developing highly functioning teams um, that can really build that sense of belonging and connection. And then, you know, there was a really great study was just published in January of this year out of the national health system in the UK. It was a Dr. West who was the principal uh, investigator on that. And so in the national healthcare system, when they looked at this in 2019, which was pre-COVID, they had over 100,000 vacant positions in their health care organization that they could not fill. 47% of physicians were contemplating leaving their organization. About 20% were contemplating leaving the profession altogether and similar numbers with nurses. And what they looked at, they thought important factors were leadership support and workload. And they looked at this in terms of how it impacts patient satisfaction. So they went back and looked at the metrics that they were using to to look at the employee experience. Mm -hmm. And they found that if employees worked in an area where they felt supported by their leader and they felt they had some influence into decisions that were made about their day-to-day lives. So they had influence into how they practiced, into decisions they were engaged in the process, that it was actually associated with a decreased perception of, of workload. So they actually, whether their workload changed or not, they had a decreased perception that they were working as much. And it was associated with improved patient satisfaction. Wow. So giving people influence, so voice and choice, and support from their leader has big impacts on their perception of workload and then patient satisfaction scores. And recruitment and retention. Yep. Wow. Yep. That, you know, I'd like to leave that there, Jen. And, you know, I think that's a good way to leave it. And I want to, uh, I just want to thank you, Jen. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing in the space to change systems, changing systems, culture change. And this work is not easy. It is tough, tough work because, you're up against, like you talked about, it is, you're up against systems that reluctance to change. This is tough work. It's becoming easier, but, you know, I remember being laughed out of rooms early on, right? Early on, like 25 years ago, like this stuff was just like, you know, as they say, you got smile, right? And, uh, you know, and, and it's not that way so much today. I think, I think people do, the, the majority of people want change and they want to get better in this space, but I think that they just don't know how. And I think it's up to yourself and it's up to us to help them get there. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and those, like I tell people, I said, if you, you know, if you're a little worried about it, fake it till you make it right. Yeah. Just, but fake it till you make it. And and I feel that the organizations that aren't on board are going to get left behind. And I think it's the organizations that are going to get on board and they're going to commit to it. Now, this isn't about being perfect. This is about progress, not perfection, but we're going to commit to it. And I think when we commit to it, the more we practice it, the better we're going to get. And this is, you know, this is going to, you know, 
this is going to take as as did the systemic system get to this point it took many many years decades it's going to take many years and decades to shift and then hopefully down the road it's probably going to look at our archaic system that we're trying to shift to and change it again i don't know yeah. but i mean that's what happens so I just want to say thank you, Jen. And, and uh, you know, it's been an honor. I think that, you know, your words are going to be hugely helpful for all our listeners. And and thank you for joining us. And, and uh, if I learned one thing in all of this, take care of ourselves. Yeah, that's important. I think and take care of each other. Right. I mean, yeah. I think we are humans and we 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 need yeah. that connection and that social reciprocity. Right. And I think you know, you summarized it really well. It's to acknowledge that there are issues and where those issues are coming from, to have a commitment to do better on this journey. And it is a journey. And then follow that quickly with action. People want to see action. And then the only other thing I wanted to say is, you know, for people that are listening that have been impacted by workplace trauma, that have been impacted by institutional betrayal, betrayal, trauma, gaslighting, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. You are not alone. Okay. I felt I was alone and you're not. Please find someone to speak with, whether that's a trusted colleague, a family member, a friend, you will find that other people have had and are having the same experience that you are having. I certainly found this when I started to speak, we were all just isolated from each other. Yeah, We were all isolated and excluded from each other. So please reach out. There are, from the physician standpoint, there are physician and family support programs. From the healthcare worker standpoint, there are employee and family assistance programs. The CMA has a, uh, a line you can, can access as well. Um, for other people in other workplaces, please reach out to uh, assistance programs that you have. You are not alone. Um, and it's important to talk about this and to work through it. This is not what's wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. This is the system in which we work. And so please, please reach out. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jen. And just to close this out, I'd like to thank you for joining us and be sure to subscribe to our show and your podcast app so we can stay connected. This show was made possible by Respect Group. And to learn more about their work and vision, visit respectgroupinc.com. R-E-S-P-E-C-T-G-R-O-U-P-I-N-C.com. Thanks again for tuning in and have a great day, everyone. Thank you.